Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a pre-seed venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in product-focused teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company or want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. If you want to work at a Notation portfolio company, check out jobs.notation.vc. This is a special episode hosted by Accolade Partners, a top-tier fund of funds and one of the first to launch a dedicated crypto fund of funds. Accolade has been one of Notation's closest partners and collaborators to date. Our host for this episode is Aram Verdian, a partner at Accolade working on both their fund of funds, crypto fund of funds, and direct investments. Aram previously worked on the investment team at Andreessen Horowitz and graduated from Stanford with an MBA. We are thrilled to have on this episode of Origins, one of the most influential figures and investors in blockchain, Santiago Santos, previously partnered Parify Capital, a leading DeFi-focused crypto fund started in 2018. Santiago is currently an advisor to numerous crypto companies. He's a prolific angel investor in the space, also known as Punk9159 on Twitter, and is the co-host of the Empire podcast. Santiago has been at the forefront of the crypto space for as long as I've known him. I'm thrilled to have the chance to jam with him on all things blockchain for the next hour. Thank you for being here today, Santiago. Uh, thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's get right into it. And let's start at the beginning. I've had the privilege of knowing you before you went all in on crypto. What was that first moment, that aha moment that got you to go all into the space? I think there were two singular events, one in 2012, one uh, at the time I was thinking of, I was at JP Morgan doing investment banking and uh, I'd set a game theory and I was focused on like there's this obsession that like you see finance and you see certain pockets of this world that don't operate up to par. You, you don't have an Amazon-like experience with finance. And at the time, I was really focused on growing up in Mexico to solve this remittance corridor, meaning when people move money across border, it's, there's a lot of fees. And when I see that, it just pissed me off. And so I said, well, I was thinking about a solution to use the leverage like an ATM network and use SMS technology to like kind of like circumvent all this stuff. But invariably, you run into a lot of problems. And, and that's when I discovered Bitcoin. And it was... That, that, that was the first aha. I said, wow, like if, if this just helps create a, a more fluid payments rails, because finance really breaks internationally. You know, you had like billions of dollars in M&A transactions at JP Morgan, like almost fall through because, you know, it takes mon- time and effort to move money across border. Uh, then then I, I saw a sort of a path for, for this to actually, you know, work at the time. Bitcoin was like a hundred bucks at the time. So, so that was interesting. The second more perhaps profound aha moment was in 2014 when at the time I was at a fund called Sageview Capital investing in open source at a time where a lot of venture capitalists were not even investing in open source traditionally because you know it's hard to get your, your mind around how do you monetize something that's inherently open and free. But you look at that and you say there are ways to do that. And we're as a fund probably at the forefront of investing in open source stuff like Red Hat and Mongo and all this stuff. But you knew that gave me insight into the issues of traditional open source systems like Linux. Like, you know, the, the founder of Linux didn't accrue much value. These communities are not very sustainable because largely they, they rely on kind of benefactors and companies like Google and Netflix that allow their engineers to spend time, like, uh, you know, adding to these repos. So the continuity of open source systems is, is problematic. Then you say, okay, wow, like Ethereum comes along and says, we want to build a generalized smart contracting platform which extends on the original vision of Bitcoin, like trustless systems is fascinating from a game theoretical standpoint, you know, but you extend that and say, wait, 
you don't really like at the time I was not really like, I didn't really know if DeFi was going to be a thing, what was going to be the killer use case, but you just sort of always understand that smart engineers, smart people, given the choice of building on closed systems and open source systems will always choose open source systems. And when you layer on top of that tokens, like a token as a wrapper to accrue value for your contributions in a more equitable way, combined with this idea of immutability, which is you're not going to get rugged by a traditional company. Like you deploy code in this open source system and there are certain properties backed by code and the immutability of what is the blockchain that are really powerful. And seeing that and seeing how a lot of the smartest people that I knew in crypto at the time were really excited about that was the second perhaps more profound aha moment and what has been to today, I think the most powerful premise of this technology, which is you have digital property rights secured by math and code and a system that doesn't work on, on, on trusting other people. It just works because it has certain properties that are enforced by really fascinating game theory and code. So those were the two that, that have kept me here. This is a great backdrop to our discussion. As you think about that evolution from Bitcoin to Ethereum to now the application layer and Web3 and all the properties you talked about, are there specific markets that you think work well in this construct and specific markets that don't? I think, yes, initially, um, you needed to have a, like a killer use case. And when you think about the landscape, like Ethereum really kind of positioned itself and, be, and, and came out of all this kind of experimentation. There were other chains like MadeSafe and all this random stuff. Ethereum kind of really took off in an interesting way. I think it captured initially just this boom of ICOs. It just became a money, a money raising machine, like a money raising machine. But more importantly, I think when things got really interesting was when you saw, you know, money as kind of the first instantiation and killer use case of this technology. You know, for a while, it felt like Ethereum was trying to boil the ocean. You talk about a generalized smart contracting platform, like really building a decentralized internet. Because the internet, the original sin, you'll talk, you, you'll hear Mark Andreessen really succinctly kind of say this is, was, was not being able to move money the same way that you move information and packets. And Ethereum kind of, pretended and aimed to, to solve that, but it's very generalized. And so I think what was very exciting for me was to see, you know, a system like Maker, which created a decentralized stablecoin by, backed by a collateral, which is super volatile called Ethereum, and see the system work in a very adversarial environment, meaning in a brutal bear market where the value of the collateral Ethereum, ETH dropped 80% or so. And yet the DAI, which is the stablecoin that gets minted, from this reserve, this collateral, maintain its peg. And I said, wow, like in many ways, like this was, this is what sort of Taleb talks about, which is like you want to, like anti-fragile systems, which are systems that get stronger with adversity are super fascinating. And so I saw that and I said, hmm, like this is pretty interesting. Like maybe this is the first kind of killer use case of this technology. Because I think like in many ways, like really revolutionary technology suffers from this problem where certain hobbyists and crazy people, perhaps like us, like see this and say, wow, like it's super fascinating. You're building. But most wow. people kind of don't see the light. And I think it takes like, for the internet, I think it was email. Email really made the internet like pervasive, right? And everyone understood, everyone communicates. And so in the absence, like until email came along, a lot of people were discounting the, why you'd want to use the internet as early as like, you know, 1999 after the bubble crash. Uh, and then email justified you having a computer at home and at work and Justified CapEx and cellular towers and building a network and like, and here we are, right? We, we can order, you know, cars and food on, on our smartphone, which has a whole host of applications. 
And I think like you were kind of waiting for that moment for for crypto. Uh, and I think like I, I felt it when I saw Maker kind of like survive this brutal bear market and say, wow, like, you know, programming money, what we call decentralized finance today is fascinating. Why? Because the only reason we truly want to do this is anyone that lived through the 2008 global financial crisis understands that counterparty risk is a problem. And the idea of salt, like of creating a more transparent system where you can assess risk, you're not going to eliminate risk, but where you can monitor risk continuously in real time and program money that is backed by this immutability of the blockchain, which is the smart contract executes a logic that is binary and no one can tamper with that, is very radically different versus the alternative, which is trusting your incompetent banker that is going to do yeah. dumb stuff. And so I think that was the first and it was like a really interesting phase of this crypto adoption cycle, like the, this DeFi. Um, yeah. So yeah. No, I remember that. I mean, in March of 2020, when ETH went down 80% and Maker was able to keep its peg with the die, that was very impressive. Santiago, where are we with DeFi today? I mean, it's the industry is only a few years old. We have, I think, over 300 billion in transaction volume, billions of users. But like, are we in the early innings? I mean, there's a number of companies that have significant traction like MKR, but where are we on that trajectory today? Well, broadly speaking, we are in early phases of just crypto as a whole, even Bitcoin. The interesting thing about where we are generally is that you are getting utility. Like you are going, moving from a pure speculative phase to a utility phase, meaning people are starting to use these protocols because they provide a, a meaningful improvement sometimes even are the only solution an alternative or uh, the only like thing that you have and, and so i think that's really interesting right most people miss the mark when they say oh wait a minute this technology is all like it's all hocus pocus and it's you don't understand it don't believe it i have never met anyone that has used this technology meaning take a stable coin use a stable coin send a stable coin to anywhere to anyone anywhere in the world in minutes no matter the amount and tell me that you want to go back to wire transfer and I've never, to this day, I've never met anyone says, yeah, you know what? Like, I really like wire transfers. And, and so I think that's really where we are generally, which is over the last couple of years, you've had an entire ecosystem that has been replicating what exists in traditional finance, kind of a parallel system that just operates on, in this rails of, of an immutable blockchain with a lot of certainty globally, accessed by anyone. No kind of like, you know, very low kind of barriers to entry and switching costs. And there's been a lot of consumer surplus attached to that for the people that have started to use this technology. There are a lot of risks, I'd say. And so the, the biggest problem that I, and the area that I'm investing behind now is risk management. We need better insurance. Without insurance, no industry is really taken off. So we need better insurance solutions. We need better kind of risk management solutions, both options or or derivatives. To to, to There is still... When things break in crypto, you lose a lot of money. There's no 1-800 number to call. There's no rolling back stuff. You know, you just kind of, it, it's it's a very unfortunate. And that's sort of like like every other technology, right? Even dynamite, like the, the, there are like these trade-offs, right? And so I think we're still very early. Increasingly though, I think the stable coins are the Trojan horse that are bringing a lot of people, especially in this macro environment, a lot of people want to hold dollars, right? And so the ability to hold a digital receipt of a dollar that is called the stablecoin could be regulated or, or 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 just permissionless like 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 Terra like like UST is fascinating, 
And I think that's really an onboarding mechanism uh, for a lot of people. Once they're here, they interact in a whole host of protocols that talk to each other seamlessly, which is what we call composability, that, that are really interesting things that is, it's not just about doing things that Wall Street offers to perhaps a lot of people that have never had access to that before. But it's also creating like new primitives that weren't possible in traditional finance. And so it's really exciting. It's chaotic at times. But I do think that like larger financial institutions are paying attention because at the end of the day, customers at these banks are demanding access to these products. And I think that's really a motivating fact. It's not that Jamie Dimon really now believes in Bitcoin and crypto and, <laughs> and DeFi. It's that he's going to lose customers if, he's not, if he doesn't add support for that. You know, Goldman just this week... Did the first kind of like I think OTC like trade of, of yeah Bitcoin with Galaxy with desk. yeah and so okay like that's that's that should have happened like five years ago but nonetheless baby steps but I think importantly there's sufficient volume and demand from the people that matter most which is the customer the customer wants access to this stuff and that's something that I think we're not going back to that I think uh, the level of awareness has gone up so much whether it be because of NFTs or gaming. And I think there are these multiple funnels that are have increased the collective awareness about DeFi and crypto writ large that have placed sufficient pressure on traditional companies, whether it be like a Facebook or a, you know, uh, whatever it may be, a banking institution to support this interaction in this in this decentralized system. So one of the criticisms that we hear in DeFi is this concept of circularity and in the late 90s, you saw this with the internet where the largest internet companies, their ad revenue was coming from other internet companies. And in DeFi, the criticism is you're leveraging crypto to earn yield in crypto. So there's this concept of circularity. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, look, there's still a lot of speculation. And that is inherent of any other piece of technology. You need speculation to, to onboard people, to get them excited to come. Uh, I don't think it's just pure speculation is what's going on in this industry. Like there's a lot of criticism says, okay, great. You know, you can, you know, take a stable coin, deposit in one protocol, earn 5% yield. And you, you deposit, you take that receipt and then you deposit another protocol and earn another incremental 10%. So you're at 15% and then you stack that yield to earn 25. There's a whole like money Legos piled on, on each other can break or not. And look, it's fair. It's a fair criticism. Uh, I won't won't necessarily push back on that. What I would say is, it sort of misses the mark. Where I think a, a lot of a lot of people are not as a sophisticated or care so much about this. Second, you know, the idea that like you're going to say if yield, we talk about yield a lot in DeFi, which is a lot right. of people want to like make their assets productive, which is fascinating. The the value proposition of decentralized finance applications does not go away in an environment where yields are perhaps closer to what you see in traditional finance. Absolutely not. By the way, they probably never will. Why? Because you are stripping out so much fat that like you talk to any bank, the only department that keeps growing is compliance and back office operations. You know, in order for you to process a mortgage and get a competitive quote, it takes you days, maybe a week. You submit the same information over and over again. It takes you, Adam, the consumer, so much time to do all this flow. On the back end, for banks, they are also suffering because they need to comply with a bunch of regulations. They need to make sure that, you know, KYC, AML. The reality is that humans will always make mistakes. But when you port that entire flow, perhaps of a mortgage application on chain, it compresses, it reduces a lot of costs for the banks. And it also 
creates a lot of consumer surplus for you because you can get probably more competitive rates because it's all very, it, it happens in a much faster, uh, it's sort of this idea of faster, better, cheaper, right? And we're not there yet. What is interesting and interesting development in the industry is creating these permission markets, which is you still use the, the bottom infrastructure, the, the rails, if you will, payments rail, the finance rails. And it's a centralized context, which is you have the certainty that things settle. The, the settlement is the key here because that's what you minimize counterparty risk. Yep. Settlement happens in this permissionless neutral layer called the Ethereum blockchain or the Solana blockchain. Now you you have to believe that you know it's decentralized and you know immutable, but if you believe that, then it's sort of a it, it just becomes a much more fluid process, right? And so when you remove costs from an equation, issuing a mortgage, uh, getting a loan, like in the span of this rambling, I could have deposited my Ethereum and Aave, my ETH and Aave, borrowed against an unstable coin at USDC, sent it back to Coinbase, and then buy a house in the real world in less than an hour. In fact, in minute, minutes. Now, tell me how that's not better yeah. than the current flow of traditional finance. I think your point on permission access is great because it not only onboards the crypto native folks, it onboards the average customer who on the front end may not see the clunky UI of blockchain that we mm-hmm. have today. But, yeah. And you can onboard millions and millions of regular customers by having sort of mm-hmm. that white label solution, but on the back end, DeFi is Absolutely. being used. That's such a good observation. I think most people miss the point, which is there is a strong incentive. It's not that we're going to blow up finances. We know it. There's just a strong incentive for even traditional institutions, user aggregators to use this technology because it it, it streamlines their operations. The big missing piece to that has been regulation. A lot of folks, a lot of banks say, I don't I don't disagree with anything you were saying right now. We love it. We think it could work really well. You see Santa Dare issue bonds. You have a, think about it this way. You have an open prom- open, transparent blockchain ledger that is giving you transaction history for everything. If you're a tax authority, you love it because you can now tax people because there's no hiding. If you're a bank, you know exactly all the different flows and the transactions. Like it's, I'm OCD. Like you, the ability to see all of this in real time allows you to continuously monitor risk, price it more efficiently. I mean, it's just a number of things that I t- tell my former bankers, like friends at JP Morgan, they're all critical of this stuff, right? I'm like, listen, guys, what if I told you you could have perfectly transparent collateral 24-7, 365? Now imagine, would 2008 have happened? Yeah. And they're like, uh, well, yeah. first of all, their eyes closed. They're like, oh shit, we could build all these different products and it'll be amazing. And I was like, yeah, exactly. That, that's what we're seeing yeah. right now. That's DeFi. Well, we can spend a whole hour on DeFi, but let's move to another sector within crypto that's gaining a lot of steam. You are a big investor in that space early on, um, gaming. And I think the whole concept of play to run gaming, especially on the backdrop of all these centralized platforms that are charging a lot of fees for in-game transactions, just being on the platform. Curious, just maybe talk to us about the opportunity in crypto plus gaming and where we are on that cycle, the same way you talked about DeFi. Yes. Gaming and NFTs have made crypto relatable. I've struggled to explain the benefits and the reason why someone would want to come and hold something like Bitcoin, use something like Ethereum over the last 10 years, 12 years. It's been difficult because most people say, you know what, like Wells Fargo works okay. JP Morgan's okay. I'm like, fine. Most people don't see it. It's a little bit like flood insurance. And I think now this is what makes this technology really interesting. Because a lot of people like to play games, especially younger generations. Most people love to collect. It's a social support. It's, it's ingrained in human nature. 
And for the first time, what I started to see is it makes crypto relatable. And most people, mind you, might not even know or care. But you know what? They have to set up, they have to onboard, they have to understand how to use this technology, at least at a very basic primitive level. And so that's what's really exciting, which is it's just a massive onboarding funnel for a lot of people. And I think like the analogy here is, I think over, over the last 10 years, a lot of investors missed investing in, in, in Chinese internet companies, you know, Baba, uh, Tencent. Why? Because they said China is just a copycat nation. This is what they do. And largely true for manufacturing, not so much for technology. And if you look at, for instance, what WeChat has done, WeChat went from being a social application, a chat, to the everything application. Everything happens on WeChat. You order food, cars, you buy banking, a stream, and you chat. Why? Because it's so pervasive. Chat is so pervasive. You're using this app all the time. So just build a whole suite of products around it. And I think in many ways, you look at that and you say, China's always, Asia has always been kind of like leap years ahead when it comes to finance uh, and how people, especially younger generations, think about money and how do they relate to money. And I think broadly, we're in this paradigm shift of our relationship with money is changing in a very dramatic way. Um, you see it in, in certain places more obvious when you compare it, China, you know, Asia versus the US. So the US still has brick and mortar banks. And then people realize, wow, this is really antiquated in COVID where you can't go to a, 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 more, you know, a bank. And you know, the IRS is and Treasury is emailing out checks, which is embarrassing. And so... I think in a similar manner, you see a path here where younger generations don't have a semblance of what like a bank is, but they're playing a game, they're earning, they're earning a token, they're collecting an NFT, and then they might use that in a local economy, meaning in the metaverse or in the real life. And that's really powerful, I think. And, and then you connect to this entire ecosystem called DeFi in the back end. You might not even know how it works. You might not even care about investing, but you know what? I think with really interesting applications, that gamify finance, then all of a sudden you start teaching people how to save because they're playing a game and it might not feel like you're thinking, you know, it's really daunting. Most people don't want to think about their finances or saving. They're terrible at it. But when you gamify that and layer a whole set of incentives, then it's really powerful. And so that's what I see with gaming. For me, uh, you know, these are the applic- like something like Axie Infinity, which is the most popular game. You know, it has transported itself to the top 10, probably top 12 last time I checked, now probably top 10 gaming studio in the world. It is a company that has the least amount of employees, the youngest out of this entire group in where you have Activision, Blizzard, and Sega, Nintendo, and Microsoft. And you see that and say, there is a version of this world where Axie will become one of, if not the largest game studio in the world. And why? Because again, it goes back to this really powerful idea which is if you're a gamer, you at some point have been left wondering, okay, I'm playing this economy in this game and I'm earning this experience and in-game items, but the, I don't actually own them. And it becomes problematic. A lot of gamers kind of think about this. And so in comes blockchain. The, the power of this technology is that it, it, for the first time ever, has given you digital property rights. It is crazy how you can buy a sword on a centralized gaming platform and then you leave that platform and that's gone. That item is gone. Like there's no secondary market for it. There's no ownership. So it transfers the the biggest paradigm shift. The biggest takeaway for anyone listening here is there's a great book called Sovereign Individual, which which predicted this 20, 30 years ago. And it's this idea that, that power is being ported over from large centralized institutions that have largely failed us over the last 20, 30 years. And I think you started to see that in, in Wall Street and global financial crisis. Now with COVID, health institutions, like the media, all this stuff, like 
centralized institutions are inefficient. They, they at some point become bloated and so they fail us. And now you're shifting power over to the individual. It's not to say that centralized institutions are going to fail to exist. You still need coordination. You still need top-down hierarchy to, to get things done. But at least it creates a sort of the, what I call this fourth stool that Montesquieu kind of predicted in political systems, which is you have the legislative, judicial, and an executive branch. Now you have a civic branch that is powered by this idea that you can own your own property, whether it be Bitcoin, NFTs, or any other digital piece of content that before crypto was not possible before. You could have uploaded a picture of the internet and there was no way to secure that. There was no way to prove the authenticity, the, ver the veracity of that, the, the provenance of that. Now you do because it's secured and it's a record, a digital record of the creator of that. And that's super powerful. And that's going to unlock so much economic value, right? Mind you, the last thing we'll say here is there's this great like economist called Hernando de Soto which talks about why certain countries pulled out farther ahead than others over the last like 200 years. And largely it's been property rights because if you own property, then you can borrow against that and it spurs innovation. Credit is important to, for economic growth and property, like, property underpins that. And now think about how explosive it is that we are, we are spending more time in the digital world. And now you layer on top of that. It comes like at the right time to create the ability to own digital property secured by like this, this system that everyone can agree on, the single source of truth. I mean, that is explosive. And we're just seeing like the early innings of that. The first instantiation was a simple thing like money, just Bitcoin. The second of that was a more generalized platform called Ethereum or Solana or some of these other competing L1s that are allowing more expressibility to do stuff like gaming and NFTs and music and authoring all kinds of stuff. I mean, it is going to be explosive. I, I know the metaverse has become sort of this meme and this like buzzword that now Goldman puts on their front page and every equity research analyst now like you control F and you see like metaverse like everywhere. I don't think people really realize that the concept of metaverse has existed for such a long time. The same with the artificial like AR, like augmented reality and virtual reality. These are concepts that are, they're not new. The question is what's different now? And what's different now is you have this idea of digital property rights. Yep. And that's explosive. So let's go deeper into this concept of decentralization. We're big believers that the biggest internet companies are going to be created where the value and control is given to the participants versus the centralized companies. And when we talk to a lot of the blockchain companies and the managers, there is this concept that at one point, these companies will be fully decentralized. I believe MakerDAO is on that map as well in terms of their life cycle, where it will be fully run at one point by the community. So this concept of decentralization, how far are we going to go? Do you think companies will become fully decentralized over time without a management team? No, I don't think so. I think it's utopian, unrealistic to assume. There still needs to be, what I said earlier, there needs to be some hierarchy in decision-making to coordinate. At the end of the day, blockchains are coordination mechanisms. You need to coordinate in order for there to be consensus, whether it's miners agreeing on, on a puzzle that could solved and mines Bitcoin. And these are coordination systems. And coordination always, I think, requires some degree of hierarchy and some, some degree of centralization. Now, I think the, the, the key thing is, though, certain things absolutely need to be decentralized and, and just focus on that. Everything else can be progressively decentralized up to a point where you don't lose too much efficiency. And the key observation I'll make here is, there are two concepts. You could be distributed and you could be decentralized. I think you want to have both. But what's important is, you know, whenever you decentralize a system, it loses some 
level of efficiency relative to a centralized institution. Now think about decision-making, right? If you're in a group and all of a sudden everyone in the group, say the hundred people have need to agree upon a certain thing, it's going to be hard, right? You can get a call everyone. And it's almost like trying to, when you go out for dinner, right? And you have like, like two couples. Okay. Right. Cause you talk to the others and fine. You agree on the restaurant. Imagine how three, four five couples, it becomes a nightmare. It's like factorial. And so that's, that's where I'm going with all this is, you know, you have to strike the right balance of decentralization of the things that really matter. Meaning for Bitcoin, it was no one can actually change the Bitcoin system that easily. This idea that there's only 21 million Bitcoin, like the the, the core properties that make Bitcoin interesting is this idea that it, from an Austrian economic perspective, it's, it's hard sound money, meaning it's a finite supply like gold. And everyone kind of knows that. And it's really in order to change the parameters of the Bitcoin network system is really hard. In fact, I'd argue almost impossible because it requires this 51 or 6 percentage of the network to agree on changing this and, and it becomes really difficult. And you know what? That idea of making it very difficult to change core properties of a system is, is really powerful. I, that is, it's a feature, not a bug. But when it comes to, for instance, a game or a consumer-facing application, like you don't want to decentralize like the product development right? You want to make a really killer product to compete against Web2, make it really easy to onboard, frictionless. You need a centralized team to deploy that, right? And so I think what you're seeing now is a lot of different protocols that deploy the code itself onto the network that is immutable, that is really hard to change, maybe through governance, but it, it has this kind of property that is like, like Bitcoin, really hard to change, rigid. And then on top of that, yeah, you're you know, there's like, you know, you deploy like front-facing applications that interact with this blockchain that is really rigid. And I think that's like the combo that you want to have. When you're settling money and you're programming money, you want to have those properties really sound, really secure, really hard to change. You want to have like admin keys kind of burned or really hard to change the core properties of the protocol. But when it comes to the front-facing, which color of the application and the flow, like you can change that. That's fine. I mean, in many ways, you don't want to decentralize that. I like the way you sort of separated the back end, which is the core operating system, and then the front end, which where you could make more tweaks. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I want to switch to talking about funding the venture market in crypto and then get to your investment philosophy. So if you look at three to four years ago, you and I could count on one hand the number of institutional VCs that were dedicating their time to blockchain. Today, there's over 300 dedicated venture blockchain funds. I'm not even including the actively traded hedge funds, tokenized funds, market neutral funds. Generalist VCs are going to the space. Funds are going up in size massively. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the sort of the funding environment and the VCs coming into the space? It's really encouraging, I would say. First observation, you know, I uh, over the years, uh, now I'm independent. Now I you know, have my own family office, invest my own capital. It gives me more degrees of freedom to do what I want, but, and invest in crazy kind of on the fringes stuff, but. And we're going to get to all of that. I'm excited (laughs) to hear more about that. But I think what is really powerful is a lot of funds that have resisted this idea. I mean, back in, funny story, back in 2014, Save You didn't want to invest in crypto. I went to Sequoia, I went to Kleiner, I went to General Cattle, every fund out there and said, hey guys, I think we should invest in in Ethereum. And, And they were like, yeah, no. Venture funds were kind of the first ones to really kind of realize, okay, we should probably invest and dedicate resources here because we're seeing a lot of engineers and a lot of the talent from our kind of investments be tinkering with this technology, even when I pivot. And I think you start to see that, right? Sequoia last year made a big splash and, and some venture funds 
or some alumni from these venture funds have gone on and, and created kind of like traditional venture fund, like crypto native funds. But now you see a whole host of folks like Ribbit and, and, and Tiger and, uh, you know, a, a lot of technology focused like large funds, both on the public and private space, kind of come into the space. And, and I think it's very encouraging. Of course, sometimes I do wonder how you deploy four and a half billion or two billion in space, where I see the most asymmetry is early stage stuff. Now, but again, some people don't want to touch the underlying tokens as sort of this regulatory arbitrage. And so you have like some like grayscale, grayscale premium for a long time, which is people don't want to touch the underlying. So they go and invest in this kind of fund. And, and so you had a premium, which would, the premium was just telling you how much people didn't want to like do and deal with security and custody, all this stuff. And in a similar manner, I think like a lot of these managers that are raising large funds benefit from that, which is a lot of people say, you know what, like I'd rather offload this to someone. And I do believe that's the case. Like you want, this space is to your point, has gone, has gone from being just one very narrow application called digital gold to attacking and addressing so many different industries like NFTs, gaming, like finance, like fintech. The verticals keep growing. And in many ways, it's going to be like the internet. You know, back in the day, you would have said you would have made the distinction between an internet and non-internet business. And yeah. in a similar way, like your crypto, non-crypto, that line blurred for the internet went away. Every business uses the internet. Similar way, every business mostly will use crypto at some point. And so I think like that, that is going to naturally attract a lot of capital formation to invest behind these applications. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, in a similar manner, like if you if you look in 2018, I thought like the the boom would have gone for much longer. The problem with that was, you know, it was largely funded by gains in Ethereum rotating into different projects. What's different now is you have like new money coming in that is more permanent. There's, you know, a, a, a venture fund is like 10 years in yep. their investment horizon. So it feels like more durable capital investing behind these applications. And so again, the, the, the key premise underpinning all of this is I think you're reaching a point where these applica- there, there are useful applications being used and supported by millions of users. This is not vaporware. This is not an idea. 2018, much different, right? It was just ideas. Now you have, like, look at Bored Apes. Like, you know, any brand, you know, is M- Lucas looks at that and says, well, these guys have done less than a year. Very few fa- brands accomplish in their lifetime. And now they're collaborating with top brands and have captured the imagination of communities across the world. And so I think, like, that's a key distinction. And so I hope we don't make the same mistakes as 2018. I think, like, there's, it's important to stay disciplined, like as an investor, right? And so you obviously, th- that's the drawback when you get too much capital trying to jam in to these right, opportunities right. that you you lose you lose that discipline at times. But you see that candidly in traditional environments, right? You see that in traditional markets too. You know, look at the P ratio of Ethereum versus the P ratio of any other technology stock publicly traded and tell me, well, just go do the, run the numbers and come back to me and tell me why you want do one versus the other, right? And so I think naturally in this environment of easy, fast money and, and quantitative easing and rates where they have been, you know, I think it pushes you out and farther out in the risk spectrum and especially in inflation, right? And so I think increasingly the only way that we've been able to, I think, get out of ourselves out of problems as a, as, a, as a species and generally beat inflation, if you're a manager, is investing in high growth areas. And yeah. you know, I can't think of a faster growing area that is attracting this amount of talent than Web3. So you think crypto over the next few years, just given the backdrop of war, inflation, yeah. interest rates? We're seeing, the, we're seeing the early innings of capital formation. Like look at, in many ways, this is like the, the 1970s, 1980s, where the venture asset class and funds 
if you look at the capital formation of venture funds, exploded because I think there were changes in pension laws that allowed pensions to invest in alternative, specifically venture, risk areas, venture, private equity. No different. Well, I, I, I think like you're going to see, you're going to start seeing $10 billion funds invest behind crypto in the next five years. We're seeing that already, like traditional buyout funds. You mentioned Sageview. There are a lot of funds like Sageview that are now doing crypto. I would have never guessed that. I knew generalist VCs who get into the space, but there are funds like Sageview that are going in. Correct, it. but they're only dipping their toes. It's not like the entire fund is dedicated to that. No, no, no. Um, and it's mostly infrastructure deals. It's mostly picks and shovels versus more yeah, token correct. investments. Correct. And you've always said, you know, in times like this, when you have a lot of uncertainty, you sort of separate the flaky projects from the real ones, and it's a great time to build. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we very much believe the next years will be explosive as well. All right, let's switch to your investment philosophy. I can't wait to hear mm-hmm. what you've been up to over the past few years. You have incredible deal flow. You've made a lot of successful investments pre-Parify, Ed-Parify, post. First and foremost, what filter do you use to select the company? What's most important for you to diligence? Well, look, I mean, I think I've been around the space a lot. That I, my, my, I, I, at the stage that I invest in is super early, first check-in. And I love talking to a founder at that stage. And I have certain themes that I'm excited about, as you know, like gaming and NFT infrastructure, still DeFi, largely. Um, and so for me, it's just connecting with the founder and understanding, is this someone that has a unique insight? And you feel it. And are they going to build through all kinds of market environments? And are they going to be able to attract talent and smarter people? And I think those are the parameters that I look for at the stage that I invest in. Now, I invest across the spectrum, really. I mean, I have a portfolio that spans not just early stage, but also public stuff and liquid tokens, I guess. And so, and, and NFTs. And, and so I think it's just a, a combination of things. For me, it's just always been investing behind following talent. And in this space, the only candidly, there are times where I felt that I wanted to leave this space because, you know, it's not perfect. There's sometimes a lot of BS like every kind of boom. And, and, and so I think for me, what's been most encouraging is seeing the smartest people that I've met are here increasingly. And the density of human capital is, keeps growing. And so for me, that's super encouraging. Can you give us an example of that authentic founder from one of the pre-year portfolio companies and how you identified that? And also on the other end of the spectrum, like something that you found was BS. Yeah, well, it's easier for the first. Well, actually, both are easy. <laughs> So I invested in this gaming company called Alluvium. Uh, it was started by three brothers. They had an older brother called Kane who had built a, one of the more successful DeFi protocols called Synthetics, which is a decentralized kind of derivatives platform. And I was an early investor in Synthetics, knew Kane, knew his DNA. He is a relentless founder who built through the worst time in crypto through brutal bear market. And you look at that and you say, well, I like that DNA. And he calls me and said, my brother wants to build something in crypto. It's finally, it's taken me years to convince him. I said, and I was his first call. And so I talked to him and he said, look, uh, one of my brothers designed a lot of the productions for Lord of the Rings, super talented artist. My other brother can help us, uh, you know, with like token design and incentives and just business development. And I've been in crypto for a while. And so we want to build a killer game that competes credibly against like, you know, Call of Duty. I was like, I love the vision. Uh, at the time, you had some of my best investments have been not perhaps being the first in a trend, but observing that trend and then investing you know, like the second or third investment behind a mega trend is what probably makes you the most amount of money. And so it's not necessarily about being the first one because sometimes there are, you wonder if there are the, the extent by which there are first mover advantages in an open source environment. Sometimes you want to take stuff that has worked and copy it and then adopt certain things and then 
which is, I think, the evolution of DeFi is today, which is you, you're seeing kind of the first legacy kind of DeFi 1.0 protocols. And then you have these newer protocols coming up and saying, we're going to adopt certain things and copy the best. And so that's where I looked at what Axie had done in this play to earn movement and capturing the imagination of a lot of gamers. Mind you, Axie is not a very immersive game. I said, what if we built a really immersive game? And that's why I've been so focused on gaming because Axie as a very rudimentary game is showing you how big this market can be because you're left wondering if a, if a basic game like that is able to transport itself into the most widely used application in crypto, then things are just fascinating, right? Yeah, I mean, and to your just, point, it's not the easiest game to play, but they did 2 billion in sales in like year three or four. So it's pretty fascinating the traction they got with such a crappy interface. Yeah, exactly. So Illuvium was on the on the spectrum of obviously Kane and being that founder that resonated with you. What about, and where is Alluvium today? Maybe talk about that. Alluvium is going to be probably the most immersive game launching in a few months. Um, it's gone, it's, it, I've helped them so much in build a community. And I think it, it, people are really excited. You, you go look at the gameplay and it looks and feels like a competitive, like I love playing Zelda and it's that, right? Uh, combined with all the nice properties of Web3 that we've talked about. And so very excited for that. Obviously, it's super, super early still, but I think, you know, you see a path towards onboarding millions of users to play this game. And so I'm excited for that. I think that was an early instance where I was probably the first call, you know, pre-seed investor, and I like to get really involved with teams. And so I, I talked to Karen multiple times a day and, you know, I'm the council. And so I'm a part of the community. And so for me, it's been a very rewarding experience. And it is very much like how I like to work with, with teams, same way that I did it with Aave and a few other DeFi protocols back in the day. You just have to be really, and this goes back to the initial observation that we did earlier. Like, you have to be close to the metal. You know, if you're not using these protocols, if you're not in these communities, good luck try to outperform. And that's where I think you want to be crypto native as possible. You understand that this investing in Web3 is a different animal in many ways, where you have to understand the interests of the community. You have to be well liked among the community. You have to do things for the community. You have to be a good steward of that and use this technology and stake your ETH and stake your assets and be productive. You know what I mean? Like It's not like a passive, easy, necessarily investing strategy. And that's why I think it, it ultimately warrants active management. And active management takes a whole new different meaning in Web3 than it did in Web2. This is not like your you know, activist funds in Web2, you know, like pounding on the door management to change certain things. It's more like restructuring Let's uh, total buyout and like, uh, you know, kind of more like an Apollo KKR would do. And, and candidly, that's where my, my former partner, Ben of Parafine Eye, like that, that was our background, really just going in and helping teams, n- not in like barbarians at the gate kind of style, but more, you know, aligning with manage- smart, talented management teams to really kind of go in there and, and, and improve operations. So, and, and then uh, on your point around BS, you know, you, you always feel it, right? I mean, there's always going to be very opportunistic founders that look at what's going on and say, yeah, I want to jump in here and just build something and and maybe try to get away with it. And, you know, there's there's no shortage of it. I don't want to single out specific names or people or protocols, but you, you sort of see it, right? Very vividly. This space, what is nice about it is it's more transparent. And so it can be demoralizing, right? Because when you see that, then things become more visible. Money grabs become more visible. Rugs become more visible. When people just scam people, you see yeah. it. It's all on chain. It's not to say that this industry is facilitating that. In fact, most most of, you know, to your point around like criminal activity and money laundering 
it happens probably less. I mean, you look at chain analysis data, it's like less than 0.5% of all transactions in the system are tied to criminal activity. It's in fact, a smart criminal doesn't want to use crypto because it's immutable and it's transparent. Yeah, You're it's like caught. the time and type caught. of cryptocurrency, like all the details are on chain. So exactly. if anything, you're arming law enforcement with a lot of data. It, you, they exactly. would have had with cash. Yeah. The optimist also in me says, I think when you are operating in a system that is transparent, you have more accountability and sense of ownership. And that, I think, influences the kind of actions that you take to be more focused on the collective well-being of everyone. And maybe this goes back to your point on you don't have to be fully decentralized. You can have a centralized management team, but they feel more accountable in this setting versus more of the regular centralized companies. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, you, how many Ubers? I mean, I, I would, my conjecture is if Uber was getting started today, the next social media network, the next big brand across retail or non-retail or gaming is going to be Web3 native because you're seeing a way when most people understand whether you're a creator or a user that you should be compensated more equitably for your contributions then given the choice of using a Web3 protocol that does that versus a Web2 company that doesn't, it's very clear that you're going to be using Web3 protocol. Combine that with the fact that like you are at parity now in the user, in the UX, in the flow, there's still frictions. There's still things that need to, you know, we need to figure out like better custody, better key management solutions. The industry is not perfect, better insurance models. But by and large, this is why you're seeing NFTs just take off in a very dramatic way. Because it circumvents this whole mafia of like galleries and the discoverability effort. You're going direct to your community. You're earning fees in a very clear way. You know, the marketplace is taking 5%, not 40%. The art dealer doesn't exist, you know. And so, and you're leveraging the entire infrastructure and distribution of the internet. It's, it's explosive. So one of the things we always talk about with managers and limited partners is how liquid this asset class is. You know, when you're at that Series B, Series C stage, there is significant liquidity and the IPO moment for these token companies has already happened. Mm -hmm. Given you are such a prolific investor in the space, how do you think about taking money off the table? Given how liquid... So how do you manage risk in in your Mm -hmm. portfolio given that liquidity? And is there some sort of a signal with entrepreneurs if you do take money off the table early on? Yeah, it's it's a great question because what you think could happen in 10 years may happen in six months. And that happened yeah. when I was investing in Ethereum in the ICO. It's like, okay, well, this could work. And then all of a sudden you're left wondering, well, well, wait a minute, Ethereum as a network is worth more than a lot of like Web2 companies. Like, what do I do? And it forces you to really go back to your thesis and constantly update new information and say, how things changed? Am I seeing signals here and traction on chain? Mind you, you can see this activity that suggests that this can be much bigger than what I initially thought or smaller both ways. And I think that's where I do in my process. I continuously process more information and blockchains are data rich. So if you're not doing that, like I force myself to do that and constantly update my models and theses. theses. And so that, that that's what helps me calibrate risk and understand and measure it. But of course, you know, when something like statistically speaking, like you always think in probabilities, right? And if someone, something does a hundred X and what is the probability of it doing another hundred X? Whereas, so a lot of it for me is just managing the optimizing my capital in a way that I always want to be rotating a lot of gains back into the ecosystem to support new founders, new projects. Uh, Understanding also that sometimes, sometimes you double down, right? And you let your winners ride. I mean, this is like common investing, like, you know, like, like cognitive biases, right? 
And so you're more prone to like hold on to losers, hoping for a turnaround than you are to continue and, and more prone to like and, and more likely to like chop your winners too early. So look, at the end of the day, you're never going to get all of it right. Uh, I think this asset class offers a lot of asymmetry. And so for me, it's just been being very close to teams and understanding what they're building, where they're headed. And it is also part of that is managing the relationship, saying, look, guys, I still love what you do, what you're building and your vision. But for me at this stage, my capital is best served investing in an in, in rotating some of the gains that I've you know been lucky to have had investing very early on in your protocol into the next you, you know? And and I think it's just a matter of communicating that and, and and being very upfront with teams. But managing risk in this liquid venture asset class is extremely difficult because you either come from liquid markets yeah. where you say everything's priced in. And the reality is very few people put in the work and look at on-chain data and are constantly updating and processing new information to calibrate their probabilities. And the other one is, you know, early stage stuff. You know, if you're in venture, it's it's the best life, right? You you're <laughs> It's like you you know in ten years or fifteen if you're very right or not so very right, and you know the average returns of venture funds keep going down. It's a very crowded space now, and you know it's like two point two x top quartile. Like in crypto, that's mediocre or terrible actually. Yeah, and, it's pretty bad. So it's also like you know some of the things I constantly think about. It's like okay, like we have been privileged. We've been very early. I've been very lucky, and so. I think the the thing that has served me and helped me over the years is just understanding what my edge is and understanding that I'm not going to catch everything and just sticking to certain theses and processes. Like for me right now, like I, I can't tell you Ethereum, like I, I have views on Ethereum, I have views on these liquid tokens. My edge is early stage and building relationship with founders and helping them grow and, and from zero to kind of one, if you will, and being a part of that process. And that's where I think has the highest asymmetry for me. But I'm not here pontificating and giving any advice to anyone. And by the way, none of this is legal, financial, or any kind of other advice. I was just very lucky. That's really helpful, Santiago. Love your perspective on the space. And we would agree. I mean, the biggest alpha comes at the sort of the company formation first round. We have only a few minutes left. So mm-hmm. let's do some quick takes. Biggest learning you've had in the space? Oof. Think in probabilities. You always want to think in probabilities. Nothing is very binary. Nothing is static. If you're not thinking in probabilities, you're doing yourself a huge disservice. Uh, maybe not so much for like, personal relationships <laughs> like that is sometimes very binary but for everything else if you're not thinking probabilities especially where the the state of which we're in which is such amount of density of information moving super fast and you're not adapting you're going to be blown out you're going to miss opportunities so you it's always so interesting probabilities. you say it's so interesting you say that because like at least early on we observed a lot of tribalism in the space and maximalism on mm-hmm. different l1s and to your point you have to think about probabilities and there isn't winner take all necessarily in these no, markets. It's a win-win. The other thing I would say is humans tend to think in, in that there is scarcity. This is this is kind of like primitive thinking. And the reality is that technology brings a lot of abundance. And I think value comes from abundance. It's difficult for us to understand that there could be a lot of value created through abundance. You know, most of the time it's like, oh, you know, we like hard assets like gold and diamonds because they're super rare and scarcity, right? Again. But I think value gets created through utility. And that has a lot of abundance. Like technology is an abundant force. And so I think like, again, it's really just, uh, I like to think of myself, like I think I have a good imagination, but my imagination is limited. But I think just creating certain scenarios where you just assume that there's going to be a lot of value that gets created in a win-win manner, not win-lose. And I think that's like, I study game theory and a lot of the thinking is win-lose. 
which I think has not really adapted to the the possibility that technology can create. And there are outcomes that are better and optimized when it's win-win. And it's hard for people because we're tribal species and all hosts of problems. But I think this technology, you're seeing it, is is very much win-win. Very helpful. Who are your mentors in the space? Who do you look up to? Uh, Certainly Vitalik. I think he is uh, someone that is able to synthesize and process so much information. And I think he has been... It's impressive that to have that level of success and still be where he is, doing what he's doing for the community, being measured in what he's saying and openly critical about the things that we haven't figured out and the behavior that sometimes happens in the excess in the industry. And I think for his age, it's doubly impressive. So definitely Vitalik. And so that would be probably number one. I mean, and then there's just so many, but I, I think um, what Joe Lubin has done I think for the Ethereum ecosystem is pretty impressive as well. Just the, this R and D kind of like uh, almost like DARPA of 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 Web three and especially Ethereum. I think he's given so much and, and supported this community in many ways. Um, so so those would be the the top two. I mean, obviously, as cliche as it sounds, it's pretty impressive what Satoshi, whoever Satoshi is with the group, just that like dropping. It's like Prometheus, like dropping that fire yeah, on humanity yeah. is uh, like I don't think it. I mean. He might be the most influential, like, person of the space, like this this century. What scares you the most about crypto? Self sabotage. A lot of times you talk about regulatory risk, exogenous forces clamping down on 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 crypto. I think the biggest risk is that we do dumb shit internally, and I think there needs to be self policing. We need to focus as an industry to create better environments and experiences, especially for uninitiated people to come in here, because it's it's unrealistic to assume that everyone is going to have a level of sophistication and technological knowledge to interact with this technology where it is today. And I think we need to we need to seriously beef up our security practices, insurance solutions today. And so a shout out. I mean, this is an area where I'm constantly investing in just I was late to this podcast because I'm I'm going to invest behind like sort of this union for for white hat hackers. Uh, and I'm, I, last week, uh, two other protocols like that, that are teams working on better auditing solutions, better continuous monitoring, risk management. We need Every industry in the history of humanity has not I mean, has worked only until we had really good insurance, and we need that today. And so, we're another wormhole hack from from really setting us back years. And so, I think we need yeah. to constantly be very focused as a community around that and creating really safe kind of experiences for especially new people coming in. That's a really refreshing perspective. Um, yeah. Last question, Santiago, mm-hmm. and then I'll let you go. You and I both have had the fortune of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. It was an amazing experience. And in one of your blogs, you made the distinction between values and goals as it relates to that climb. Because most people focus on reaching the summit. That's the goal for them, not the value and the climb itself. Kind of bring this home for us. How does this value and goal system influence your thinking and actions in the crypto space? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a great question. Thanks for reading my blog. And hopefully you didn't put you to rest. Uh, like <laughs> sleep, probably maybe I did. But yeah, it's this idea that Look, we are just extremely lucky to be living what I think is the most powerful socioeconomic transformation since the Industrial Revolution. Like, we are reinventing like operating systems and the way we interact and coordinate as species. I believe it. I think that's where we're going. It's just incredible that sometimes generations go by and you don't see this. And so it places a huge amount of like, it's like daunting, but also it's just, but it's also a huge amount of responsibility to what we do with this technology. I think technology is neutral, but what we do with it is kind of important. And we are early adopters. And, and I think we have a lot of 
power and influence to like deploy this piece of technology and, and, and build it in a very interesting, useful way. And so I think for me is look, certainly like the idea of the asymmetry of this asset class being right and early is very rewarding. What's most rewarding is the ability that you can impact so many people. And, you know, there's narratives around, you know, banking the unbanked and all this stuff, but, but, but I think it really brought it front and center for me when I started seeing all these creators come into the space and just turn their livelihoods around in a very meaningful way. You started seeing NFTs, but it doesn't stop there. And I think the economic opportunities that are going to be created by, by Web3, this idea of having digital property rights, for so many people that haven't, is explosive. It's going to be so powerful. Not only empowering so many people of traditional industries, but creating new economies and labor structures. And so, you know, my biggest takeaway is, is just you have to be there, right? You have to be out bad. You have to, you know, for me, is is investing. Uh, I'm not a builder, but, you know, it's just a privilege to be able to be uh, supporting these people in the way that I can and help kind of steer in the small way that I do just the direction of this industry that I think future generations will look back and said, what were you thinking? Like, of course, it makes total sense that Bitcoin is a kind of a credibly neutral kind of monetary system as opposed to relying on a traditional monetary system at the whims of a central banker. Like you place so much influence, influence and power on one individual. History teaches it's going to be corrupted. And in a similar manner, it sort of will make sense that we had digital property rights secured by a neutral piece of technology as opposed to a gatekeeper that is corrupted. And the last thing I'll say is, look, I'm not a believer that humans inherently are bad species. I think we are good. All you need to do is create a system that promotes that. And I think that's that's like that's why this matters. And so I hope that like people, I'm not asking you to believe in Bitcoin or Ethereum or none of this, but I think we can all at this point kind of agree that centralized institutions are failing us. And this offers like a breath of like fresh air to create and coordinate and collaborate in super powerful ways. And that's really what's most exciting. I don't think we've seen like, I think we're seeing five, 10% of what is possible with this technology. It's kind of crazy. Well, I'm grateful there's someone like you in the space who's constantly pushing it forward in so many productive ways. And you guys too, to be fair. I mean, I, I still remember, I mean, you were, the fact that in having you guys do God's work, bringing all this capital that has been skeptical in the sidelines. And I remember the managers. first meeting you and I had, um, you hadn't joined Parify yet, we didn't raise a dollar. So we've <laughs> both come a long way. Santiago, this has been an incredible discussion. I mean, I Thank can you. honestly listen to you talk about crypto for hours. <laughs> Thank you for all the thought, thoughtfulness, your perspective. I think the audience will really benefit from it. And again, thank you for all the work you do in the crypto space. Absolutely. No, thank you as well. You guys do a lot of incredible work. And so keep doing that. And we're here to support each other. So appreciate you having me on the pod. And hopefully it was helpful for, for all listeners. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. You too. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first track venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to our friend Aram Verdian from Accolade Partners for hosting this episode. You can find him on Twitter as Aram Verdi and at accoladepartners.com. Mm-hmm.